trust that you had a great uh, Thanksgiving uh, with your family or friends. And uh, first I want to say that it is a privilege and an honor to be your pastor. If you have been praying for me over the past four months, I would ask that you keep it up. And uh, if you haven't, you can, this would be a good time to start praying for me. So I was talking with my kids uh, kind of through the process a number of months ago, and one of, my, one of my kids said kind of optimistically, well, I don't know why it wouldn't work for you to be the senior pastor. Everyone likes you, and you're not a bad preacher. So, so I thought, well, this is very encouraging. Uh, we're going to hope for not a bad sermon this morning on my first uh, sermon as senior pastor. But we have been working our way through the month of November on our missions-minded month. And it's become our custom the last uh, number of years to take the month of November and just do a deep dive to remind ourselves as a congregation the importance of being on mission. And so if you've been tracking with us through the month of November, the first two weeks of the month, we had the privilege of having Alan Matamoris here with us, speaking to us uh, out of the book of Jonah, reminding us of God's tenderness and how it is really the kindness of God that brings us to a place of repentance and how we uh, as ministers uh, of a reconciliation and the covenant need to be uh, having that same tenderness in our own hearts. And then last week, uh, Jonathan Gorney, one of our uh, local missionaries uh, with Young Life, uh, reminded us of our missional identity, helping us think about what it means to be a church and a congregation that is pursuing the Great Commission. And it's been great this past month to focus in on this absolutely important and critical uh, reminder that we as a church are built around the mission to which Jesus has called us. So we as a congregation uh, receive our identity, we receive our sense of purpose from the mission uh, that Jesus has called us to. We're not a static people, merely an inward focused gathering of people. To be brought into the family of God is to be brought into an assignment and to be assigned a role in the mission of God. And our identity as a congregation then is built around the great commission that Jesus has laid out for us. At the, we read it uh, a number of places, but read it at the end of Matthew's gospel. To go out into all the world, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all the things that Jesus has commanded. And when a local church forgets or neglects this mission, it ceases to be a thriving expression of the kingdom of God. So we need to keep the mission of God, the mission of Christ that has been given to, to all of us as followers of Christ and to us collectively as a congregation and then globally as the people of God, we need to keep this mission central in our lives. And so it's good and right that we take an entire month each year to remind ourselves of this. And as I was coming up to this sermon and knowing that I'd be preaching here at the culmination of our mission-minded month and thinking through what is it that the Lord would have me say to us as a congregation as we come near, as we come to the conclusion, the climaxing sermon of the mission-minded month. And I was pondering and praying, and initially my thought was to was to do kind of a, a rallying cry to remember the importance of mission, much as what I've, my comments have just been. But I was talking with Pastor John uh, earlier this week, and as we were discussing the possibilities for the sermon, he mentioned uh, this passage that's been read for us, Luke 10, 38 through 42, with the story of Mary 
and Martha. And, and it just felt like the Lord was really saying to me, yeah, that's where we need to go. So if this doesn't work, you can blame Pastor John. If it works well, this is obviously on me, of course, because I'm the one that delivered it. But uh, in any case, uh, I think the Lord has a word uh, for us here as we culminate this emphasis on missions. Because I want to direct our attention this morning, and this passage is going to direct our attention this morning, to the one thing, the one thing that is even more important than mission, to the one thing that must always undergird missional activity, and indeed is the reason that missional activity exists. It's the reason that Jesus sends us out to make disciples, baptizing and teaching people who Jesus is. And if we compromise this one thing, then all missional activity loses its way. And we'll look up one day and find that we have only been going through the motions. And then when that happens long enough, eventually even the motions themselves stop. So perhaps you started coming to Calvary during the Created to Need sermon series earlier this fall. Perhaps this is your first time at Calvary. Perhaps this is your first time in a church. Whether you're just starting out in the Christian faith, checking out the Christian faith, or a veteran of the Christian faith, or like me, you have been a Christian as long as you can remember, this is a needed reminder for each of us. In our text this morning, which has already been read, is Luke 10, 38 through 42. Make sure you're still there. And it reminds us of this one thing that is crucial to any church's sense of mission. All right, so as we dig into this text, I want to just make a few comments of context here back in Luke chapter 10. And uh, that'll help us understand what's going on uh, in the passage that's been read for us already that we'll be focusing on this morning. At the beginning of Luke chapter 10, Jesus has gathered together the 72 disciples. Jesus, we know famously of the 12 disciples, and then he had a kind of a larger network of disciples, 72 of them. And in other places, we read even more so of an even larger network of 144 disciples. But here we have a focus on the 72 Disciples And Jesus appoints the 72 disciples and he sends them out on mission. And in many ways, what he sends them out on mission in the beginning of Luke 10 is kind of a, it's a trial run, as it were, of the great commission that he's going to send them out on right before his ascension into heaven. And so he, he sends them out to, to preach the good news and to bring the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom of God to the peoples. And then they come back. Uh, in verse 17, and they rejoice and they talk about the success of their mission. Jesus uh, praises God for the success of their mission in verse 21. Then there's this brief interlude in 25 through verse 37, where Jesus is asked by some of the religious leaders about uh, uh, the, uh, who is my neighbor, and this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus answers that. And then that takes us to verse 38. And when we read in verse 38, which is our text this morning, now as they went on their journey, the they who went on their journey is most certainly Jesus and the 12 and the 72, and then whoever else is following along with Jesus. So, so now we enter into the story. Jesus is a traveling preacher. He's an itinerant preacher. He's been making his way in and around Jerusalem and Judea, then the land of Israel. 
And it's his custom as he moves from town to town and village to village to take up residency or lodging in a sympathetic home. And uh, that's how this happens here in this passage. Jesus is coming into the village of Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, and somehow he is connected with Martha and Mary. This is a famous sister pair. This is the first time that Jesus encounters them. They become uh, very intimate acquaintances throughout the Gospels. But this is the first time that Jesus, from what we know, comes into their home. This is also uh, Martha and Mary, you may recall, are the sisters of Lazarus. So Lazarus is probably also here as well. Lazarus was, again, famously raised from the dead by Jesus at the end of his ministry. Martha is almost certainly the older sister of the three siblings because it's described as her home, and she's the one that welcomes them into the house. And so Martha, uh, whether we, we don't know exactly how it is that Jesus connected with Martha's household, whether Jesus sent someone on ahead, sometimes he would do that. And he would say, hey, I'm coming to the village, find some place for me to stay. He'd tell his disciples, maybe uh, he was invited by Martha, who had heard of him. In any case, ends up at Martha's household. And Jesus doesn't just show up by himself, but he shows up with his entire entourage, all of those who are following him. We're told in the preceding chapters of Luke that go back that Great crowds are always accompanying Jesus wherever he shows up. He's a miracle worker. He's healing people. He's preaching the secrets of the kingdom of God in ways that they hadn't heard the religious leaders preach before. And so wherever he shows up, it's just swarms of people come around him. And in Luke's gospel, nearly every time that Jesus enters a home prior to this, what we read here, When Jesus enters a home, we see the home overrun with people. So when Jesus comes to Peter's house in Luke chapter 4, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and almost immediately, everyone in the village and surrounding areas crowds in and around the home, bringing those that are sick. And it gets so crazy that the next morning, Jesus wants some time alone to pray, and he has to sneak off while it's still dark and go uh, by himself to pray. Or we might remember the story in Luke 5 of the healing of the paralytic. Jesus is teaching in a home. It's so crowded that people can't get in. There's some friends that have a friend who's a paralytic. They want to bring him to Jesus to heal him, but they can't get through the crowds. And so they go up on the roof and they cut the hole in the roof and they lower their friend down. Or again in Luke 5, Jesus goes to Matthew's house, one of the disciples when Matthew first becomes a disciple. And we read that a large company of people showed up at the home when Jesus came. Or there's the occurrence of the centurion who sends for Jesus to come and heal one of his servants. And as Jesus is making his way to the centurion's house, he has a large crowd that is following him. Doesn't get all the way to the house because he ends up healing the servant before, just from remote. Then we have the situation in Luke 8 where Jesus again is teaching in a home and Jesus' mothers and brothers come because it seems like it's getting out of hand, all these people that are crowding around Jesus. And so they come to take Jesus home, but they can't even get into the home because it's so crowded. Then, of course, there's Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, where Jairus is a synagogue ruler and he has a daughter who's sick. He sends for Jesus to come to his home to heal his daughter. And as Jesus is making his way, we read that the crowds welcomed him and the people pressed around him. So wherever Jesus goes, it just starts a thing just starts a thing. And so we have no reason to expect that this situation is any different. 
Certainly as Jesus has showed up at Mary's house, we know at least he's brought the 72 with him, plus all the women that are traveling along, plus all of the people that Martha herself would probably have invited from the town of Bethany, the important people in the village, Martha's own household. And then there just would have been the hangers-on that followed Jesus from town to town for as far as they can go before they have to go back home. So put yourself in Martha's shoes in this situation. She probably doesn't know yet a lot about Jesus, except that he's a miracle-working young rabbi who's attracting lots of attention. She's welcomed him into her home, and that's no small thing, given the fame that he has at this point in his ministry. And such a large group of people must have been inevitably difficult to manage. How long is Jesus going to stay how long will all of them stay? It's probably the bigger question. Who are we feeding? Do we feed them? And if we're going to feed them, which of the people here are we supposed to feed? And then what are we going to feed them? And then what are we going to give them to drink? They would drink water or wine cut with water, and it's not perhaps just as easy as running out to the well in the back. Then they're shooing the animals out of the courtyard to make room for the guests making sure that the right people get access to Jesus because there's a lot of people milling around and who's supposed to be sitting near him, who's not supposed to be sitting near him, finding places for people to sit, places for people to stand, people trampling on your petunias. I don't know that that actually happened, but I imagine she had something the equivalent of petunias in her house and people were stepping on them, right? So there's a lot going on and it's understandable then that we read Luke telling us that Martha is distracted with much serving. I mean, how could she not be distracted with much serving? That's what we would expect the mistress of the house to be in such a situation. Imagine such a crowd of strangers cramming into your house. Maybe 100 people, maybe 150 people would not be out of the question, possibly even 200 people in and around your house. There for the afternoon, maybe the evening, maybe the next day, maybe the day following, some sense of responsibility that you have to accommodate the crowd. Many of them are with Jesus' own party, his own traveling party, but many of them are probably strangers from neighboring villages, people that you don't even know, that don't even know Jesus. Maybe they've brought with them their sick, and so now outside on your lawn and the surrounding lawns of your neighbor's are gathering up and queuing up people who are sick. Some of these people have come with Jesus and in a sense are invited into your home, but many of them are not with you and they're not especially motivated to respect your home. I mean, these are the kinds of people that because they can't get into your house, they go up on their roof and they tear a hole in your roof to let people down. <laughs> right? So just think about that for a bit. If you're in Martha's situation, even the most relaxed of us, and I think I'm a fairly relaxed person, but even the most relaxed of us would find the whole situation a bit stressful. And then to cap it all, the reason that you probably even wanted Jesus in your home to begin with, if you're, if you're Martha, is because you wanted to hear the things that he had to say. You wanted to hear his teaching. I mean, he is rumored to be teaching the secrets of the kingdom of God. No one's taught like this man before, the crowds have said. And he's a miracle worker to boot. And you want to see Jesus. 
you've opened up your home, but now you're running around like a crazy person who doesn't have time to listen to what he's saying. And then you see Mary. Must be nice to be Mary, is what you're thinking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Little sister just taking it all in right there, front and center at Jesus' feet. You're doing all the work, and she's getting all the payoff. For some of you, that's a little close to home with Thanksgiving, this past <laughs> Thanksgiving, right? There's a Mary Martha thing going on in your home. And in that scenario, you don't want to be the Mary. You want to be the Martha, right? You're the Martha that's the responsible one, right? So Martha is distracted, and it makes good sense from Martha's perspective that she's distracted. And candidly, it makes good sense from our perspective, too. Luke is not inviting us, I think, he is not inviting us to think of Martha as some highly strung person who can't help sweating the small stuff. We have no reason to think of Martha as a needlessly stressed, over-anxious woman who gets too worried about minor details, as though she's just the kind of person that's too uptight to just relax and enjoy the moment. If you've read the Gospel of Luke, perhaps you've come across this passage, or if you've grown up in church, you've heard this story before. And, and I think I've had in my mind a lot of times this sort of quaint picture of Jesus with a handful of disciples, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, sitting down together, maybe another friend or so, 15, perhaps 20 people at the most, all just enjoying a meal, and Martha, highly stressed, running around, and Jesus saying, just sit down, just sit down. That's not the situation, almost certainly, that Martha is faced with. Martha is faced with a fairly overwhelming situation of hospitality and the demands of it. And we can understand her anxiety. Casting Martha as kind of a highly strung woman lets all of us off the hook in ways that I don't think Luke intends for us to be let off the hook. All of us probably would have been Martha in Martha's situation. Yet somehow, she's still doing the wrong thing. She perhaps finds some break in the teaching or at some in-between the, the serving of the meal, and she comes up to Jesus, seeing Mary sitting there, and she's understandably frustrated, and she says to Jesus, look at Mary just sitting here. Can you tell her to get up and do a little bit of work? right? Because I'm the only one that's doing anything around here. And, and candidly, we almost might expect Jesus to be like, Mary, what, what is the deal? Like, your sister, have a care, Mary, right? I mean, for Pete's sake, you make her do everything. I had a fr friend of mine who, um, talking about his, one of his brothers, and he said his brother would always take every opportunity to get out of work. They'd, they'd come home from vacation and they'd have to unload the car. And his brother would go to the bathroom for 20 minutes until the car was unloaded, <laughs> right? And then he would get frustrated, no doubt, right? And you would expect in that situation for him to complain to his father and his father would be like, oh, out of the bathroom and go carry in the suitcases, right? That's what we'd expect. We'd expect Jesus to be like, hey, Mary, come on. You know, your sister, she's doing all this stuff. Like, give her, a, give her a hand. But he doesn't. Surprisingly, I think we're, 
somewhat supposed to be surprised, he sides with Mary over Martha. Martha, Martha, he says. It's a tenderness in the way that he speaks her name and then repeats it. There's a tenderness there. There's an understanding that Martha has a lot on her plate. There's a lot going on. And Jesus isn't coming down hard on her. But there is a rebuke here. You're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better portion, which will not be taken from her. Mary is not trying to get out of work. Mary isn't looking for some reason to not have to serve, some excuse to not have to carry the water. Mary has prioritized devotion to Christ over service to Christ, and Jesus has affirmed her decision. Mary has rightly recognized the significance of this moment, of Jesus being in their home, that what was needed in that moment was not to serve him, but to be served by him. Mary understands that Jesus is speaking the words of eternal life, the secrets of the kingdom of God, and that the primary posture most needed in that moment is that of a learner and a worshiper. Martha serves Jesus. Mary adores Jesus. And Mary has chosen the better. So here's the punchline for us as we come to the end of our missions-minded month. Service in the cause of Christ, no matter how reasonable or seemingly necessary, must never trump devotion to the person of Christ. Jesus tells Martha that only one thing is necessary. Not service to Christ, as though Jesus stood in need couldn't figure out how to get things done, but knowing and loving Christ. A true faith, of course, is an active faith. It's made clear all throughout Scripture. But, and it's obviously not wrong to serve Jesus. We're called to serve Jesus. We're given a mission in service to Jesus. But when serving Jesus stands in the way of intimacy with Jesus, When serving Jesus stands in the way of intimacy with Jesus, then serving Jesus needs to be set aside in that moment. I think maybe this is true for all of us. All of us need to be reminded of this, some perhaps more so than others. But I think think all of us have a tendency towards Martha. It's not easy just to sit and adore Christ. I thought through a number of reasons why perhaps uh, this is the case. See if some of these speak to you. First, I would say I think that some of us think, like Martha, if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. We, we think it all depends upon us. We think that we're the linchpin that makes everything happen. No doubt that seemed very reasonable to Martha. It's the mistress of the home with all that was going on. If she didn't do it, who would? I mean, imagine what would happen if she just went and sat at Jesus' feet. What's interesting in this text is we don't know which choice she made. 
we're, I think, supposed to be put into the position of Martha, how Luke writes it. And the choice kind of remains open for us. What did Martha do? Did she hang up her towel and go sit down next to Mary? Was she frustrated and just kept serving? We'll hope she made the better choice. But, but she was under the impression that everything hinged upon her. But Jesus is saying, listen, you prioritize what you should prioritize first. And then these details, they take care of themselves. Somehow they take care of themselves. Jesus doesn't quite say it in this passage, but what I think he says elsewhere is like, I'll take care of the details. Like, I can figure that out without you. You do what you should do first. It doesn't all depend upon us. And if we start thinking that it does all depend upon us, we start getting absorbed in the doing rather than just the being. The serving rather than the adoring. I think another reason that we, uh, we gravitate towards doing is we want to, we want to avoid intimacy. I, I think some of us, you can maybe know people in relation, you have relationships like that, where you, you have a friend perhaps or an acquaintance that they do a lot, they do a lot, but they never sit still to actually let themselves be known. It's hard to get in, as it were, into their lives and into their hearts. And I think it can be like that in our relationship with God, too, relationship with Christ, where we, we, we want to do things for him that kind of keep us busy and, and avoid having to come into the intimacies of our own heart and perhaps dealing with things that we would rather press off. And so we absorb ourselves in activities rather than allowing ourselves to enter into a communion with Jesus. So I think sometimes we think it all depends upon us. Sometimes we're trying to avoid intimacy. Sometimes I think there's just a a simple ignorance. We don't know how to relate to Jesus as a person. So we relate to him as a cause or perhaps a morality system or a philosophy of life. Maybe you're exploring the Christian faith. You're, You're considering it. And it's it makes sense to you to think of the Christian faith as as a religious system, like the other religious systems of the world, to think of the Christian faith as a, as, a, as a code of morality that provides a moral compass, perhaps a philosophy of life by which to navigate trials and tribulations. All of this sort of makes sense. But the idea of relating to Christianity not as a concept, but to the person of Jesus that, that just is a concept that is hard to even get your head around. You think about, and, and, and sympathetically so, I mean, when you think about what it is that we say as Christians, that this Jesus we're reading about here in Luke 10, went on to say and do a bunch of other things, was killed on a Roman cross, God raised him from the dead, and having raised him from the dead, he ascended into heaven living in bodily form and somehow right now lives in the heavens in a way that you can know him personally through his Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a radical claim. We're saying that Jesus is still alive somewhere, somehow, as we just professed in the creed, at the right hand of God the Father, however metaphysically that works but that each of us can know him and be in personal relationship with him and that this is the heart of the Christian faith and you just don't even know what that is. Or perhaps you're a teen and you're moving into that place in life where 
your parents' faith, your family's faith, the kind of backdrop of your life is now inviting you into thinking about the personal implications of it. And you've not really explored what it means to be in personal relationship with Jesus. We can read the scriptures, God's word to us. We can come together in fellowship and the worshiping community and let God speak to us through the readings and through the songs to hear God's word proclaimed to us in the scriptures, in the sermon, as we gather around the table every month to have Christ come and meet us in communion with him and with each other. When we gather together in two or three, Jesus promises to be with us. There are many ways that we can cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus. But I think at the core of it all is a belief that you can cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus that he lives and is alive and wants to know you and wants you to know him. I think the last reason that some of us prioritize service over communion with Jesus is because we prefer it that way. Because when we let Jesus come in, he begins to tinker with our life. In ways, amen, in ways that are just frankly kind of inconvenient. And it's easier to have a surrogate relationship with Jesus through the religious activities that you do than to actually let Jesus come in and start shaping you. You know, in relationships with one another, if I'm sitting down with you and you tell me something, I say, I'm thinking about doing this, and you say, no, I think you should do this. I can comfort myself in knowing that you're probably wrong, and I can go my own way. (laughs) But when I sit down with Jesus, and I'm like, I'm thinking about doing this, he's like, no, I think you should do this. I don't get to go, well, no, no, I think I'm just going to do this. Thank you for your advice and counsel, but I'm over here, right? Jesus is never wrong, right? It's very inconvenient for us, (laughs) right? And he, he has opinions about how we should live our lives, because he knows best for us, but It just begins to tinker with us. And it's easier sometimes just to fall into religious observances and doings than let him into the intimacies of your life and begin to direct you in ways or to begin to uncover parts that you don't want uncovered. And so we just, it's not that we don't know how to relate to Jesus personally. We just don't want to relate to Jesus personally. What is the state of your relationship with God through Christ this morning. Perhaps you have in subtle ways allowed your service to Christ, your busyness for Christ to trump your devotion to Christ. And perhaps it makes a lot of sense. You're in Martha's situation. You're not just some highly strung out person. I mean, there's a lot pressing in on you. You've got a lot on your plate. But you've allowed service to Christ to trump devotion to Christ. Or perhaps you're neither Mary nor Martha. You're not sitting at the feet of Jesus, adoring him, and you're not even Martha serving him. Perhaps Jesus is just another word for the system of belief that you profess. Just another word for the philosophy of life you espouse, or just another word for the moral framework you adhere to. You believe in the idea of Jesus. You believe in the religion of Jesus. But it wouldn't be fair to say that you have a relationship with Jesus. 
Or perhaps you know what it is to have a relationship with Jesus and you've slid now into this concept of Jesus. If that's you, you are missing the whole point of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not some cause by which Jesus invites us in to support, some mission to accomplish. It's not merely a moral system. The Christian faith is at its heart a personal relationship with God through Christ, a personal relationship with the God who made the world and who made us. And if we just really sit and think about that for a moment, that is a rather preposterous claim that Christians make. It would make more sense that God is removed and far off and has set up the world in certain ways. And what Christianity is is just kind of the blueprint for how to move through the world. But, but Jesus teaches us more than that. He teaches us to call God Father and that God is present and cares and knows and sees and wants to be in relationship with us. It'd be crazy to think that. It'd be presumptuous to think that if Jesus himself hadn't come and taught it to us. God did not send Christ to save us so that we could serve him. He didn't send Jesus to redeem us from our sins and to make us new just so we could serve him, as though God didn't know how to get done what needed to get done apart from our service. He didn't send Jesus into the world merely to teach us how to live or to give us a mission with which to busy ourselves. He sent Christ to save us so that we could know him. John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays for his disciples. And he begins the prayer praying to his father. He says, this is eternal life. You want to know what the whole Christian faith, bring it down to this moment. This is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's the whole shoot and match right there. If you miss that, if we miss that, all of our activity misses. We have to hang on to the centrality of knowing God. Let the world burn down around you. The person of Christ is worth more than all the world. Christ calls us to participate and serve in the mission of God because he loves us and because he wants us to know him like he knows us. God loves you. He longs for you to know him and to know the joy and the life eternal that can be found in him alone. So who is God to you this morning? An idea, a concept, or a living person. As your pastor, I intend to see to it that we keep our eyes fixed on the mission to which Christ has given to us. But even more fundamentally, I intend to see to it that we keep our eyes fixed on the person of Jesus that God has given to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this reminder. Um, I thank you for it for myself, even in the preparation and the preaching of it, that Jesus is central. He is the beginning, middle, and end of all that we are about. God, we do want to serve you. We want to make you, your name known in all the nations as we've been talking about this month, but we don't want to be distracted in that activity from knowing Jesus from him being the center of our lives. Lord, you have been so gracious and kind to us 
beyond hope or expectation to invite us into relationship with yourself. God, forgive us in the times we've been like Martha where we perhaps understandably have been overwhelmed by all of the demands that have been put upon us, even demands in service to you and uh, have lost sight of the need to make you central. God, help us even this morning to turn our hearts again towards Christ and to lay hold of him in intimacy, to allow him into our lives as complicated and as messy as that can be, trusting that he loves us, brings your love and joy into our lives, and through your spirit will guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.